This is Guns and Butter. with an FBI cookbook. It looks like this. You get one provocateur, or one or two, right, provocateurs, who can carry out this sting or entrapment operation. You give them unlimited money and resources, and since you want to target Muslims, of course, you go to a mosque, right? If you were looking for some other group, you'd go someplace else. But you go to a mosque, and as you find someplace else, too, you'll find the human wreckage of society in the form of, of the patsies. And these are mentally impaired, gullible, patsies, dupes, whatever they are. And they've got to be very poor. In other words, they've got to have mental problems and at the same time extreme poverty so that the money looms very, very large with them. You then sheep dip them. You've got to get them in touch with somebody who's a famous terrorist. And in this case, they tied them to Jaish-e-Muhammad. And Jaish-e-Muhammad is a Pakistani group. Notice, Pakistan, Pakistan, Pakistan. This is part of the worm turning. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama and Civil Liberties. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, a Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss the possible civil liberties implications of Obama's West Point speech and an historical parallel between Woodrow Wilson and Barack Obama. Most of the program focuses on the arrest, detention, and prosecution of so-called homegrown terrorists, including Najibullah Zazi, the Bronx Bombers, the Fort Dick Six, the Liberty City Seven, also known as the Miami Haitians, the Toronto 18, and extensive discussion of the Fort Hood shooter case and Tarpley's essay, Nidal Malik Hassan of Virginia Tech, Bethesda, and Fort Hood, a major patsy in a drill gone live. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. In President Obama's address to the nation on the way forward in Afghanistan and Pakistan, that to the uh, West Point cadets, near the end of his speech, he says, um, but I also know that we as a country cannot sustain our leadership nor navigate the momentous challenges of our time if we allow ourselves to be split asunder by the same rancor and cynicism and partisanship that has in recent times poisoned our national discourse. And, you know, I don't want to read too much into it, but at the time I sort of thought, well, could he possibly be talking about dissent within this country? I think he, he very well may be, and I think the, the main way we can, we can figure this out is by looking at certain historical and philosophical precedents. Uh, here in the United States, uh, I think we can say that the home of totalitarian liberalism, or you might say something shading over into the corporate state, uh, is the Wall Street wing of the Democratic Party. You know, let me try to point out what, what I mean by this. We have some Democratic president, above all, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and that's four elections, and Kennedy is one election. This is the anti-Wall Street wing, uh, with whatever flaws and contradictions they might have had. Uh, the Wall Street wing, I would say, is Woodrow Wilson, 
Harry Truman, Jimmy Carter, and now Obama. And we have to realize that there are fundamentally two kinds of Democrats, right? The anti-Wall Street type is pro-labor, has populist overtones, and generally is about the best we're going to find in this system. But the Wall Street wing of the Democratic Party is uh, really uh, a, a tragedy. I'd like to talk about Wilson most. We should also remember under Harry S. Truman, this was somebody who uh, essentially did his best to attack and destroy the New Deal coalition, right? He was, you know, doing things like, you know, open police state attacks on labor unions, right? Strike breaking, unbelievable stuff. Um, Carter is the same thing in terms of uh, economics. Um, and now uh, Obama, uh, I think in, in terms of uh, agitation and propaganda today, right, given, given how little people know about history, it's useful to say Obama equals the worst of Lyndon B. Johnson, the worst of Carter, and the worst of Nixon. He, he is the uh, military defeat, uh, catastrophic war side of LBJ. Uh, and it's a tragedy, too, because LBJ had real uh, credentials as a reformer and as a progressive force in, um, in, in U.S. society. Look at things like the Civil Rights Act, look at Medicare, look at uh, any number of things. But this, of course, was all destroyed then by, by Vietnam, and that's the... the, the challenge to people who want to support Obama today is you've got to realize that war policy will guarantee the defeat and the virtual extinction of progressive causes for many generations. Um, if we say Obama is the worst of LBJ and the lost war, the worst of Carter in economic chaos, and the worst of Nixon in terms of these police state excesses, because we have renditions going on, we have black sites, we have kidnappings, we have uh, preventive detention, he can throw anybody in jail that he wants to. We have continuous wiretapping immunity for wiretapping uh, telephone companies and all the rest of this. But I would like to propose that the real connection is Woodrow Wilson. Now, could you, uh, Webster, remind us when uh, Woodrow Wilson was in power? Yeah, this is uh, basically, it's from uh, the elections are 1912. He wins in 1912, and then he wins in 1916. And uh, this is the person who brought the U.S. into World War I, which was a great historical catastrophe. And uh, essentially, instead of solving the issue posed by World War I, he made it much worse by allowing the Allies to defeat Germany, to crush Germany, and then impose this Carthaginian peace settlement at Versailles with reparations and all the rest of it, which, of course, was the, was the food off which demagogues like Hitler then uh, fed. It, he compounded and made worse this tremendous um, tragedy. Let me just reel off a couple of things about, about Wilson uh, and, and also compare him to uh, Obama. Uh, Wilson is the most academic of all presidents, right? People talk about how uh, Obama's an academic, he's cerebral. Well, Wilson is the only person holding a Ph.D. who ever became president. Uh, and we get into this area of the, the pedant in the White House, right? The academic, aloof, analytical, detached from, from people's feelings. Um, Woodrow Wilson got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1919, ironically, as he was basically uh, uh, championing the Versailles peace settlement, which was the guarantee, as, as Keynes and others wrote at the time, that there was going to be another war in 25 years. So, uh, there you have it, or 20 years, even, even less. Um, Woodrow Wilson ran in 1916 as a peace candidate. 
He was going to be the guy who would keep you out of war. Remember that the, the war in Europe had begun in uh, July, August 1914. So there was more than two years between that and the U.S. presidential election. And the big question was most people didn't want any part of this. They wanted to stay out of it. It was a, a conflict of imperialisms, none of which was very palatable. And especially if you were German or if you were Irish or if you were any number of other nationalities that were not so in love with the British as, uh, as Woodrow Wilson was, you'd want to stay out of it. So imagine... Woodrow Wilson running in 1916 as an outspoken peace candidate, much more so than Obama, right? Much, much more, I'll keep you out of war. And then revealing himself as a total duplicitous hypocrite, turning around then, and in April of 1917, just about you know, a month after taking office for the second term, demanding a declaration of war against Germany. And this is where things begin to get, uh, begin to get really wild, because... Woodrow Wilson then says, we cannot tolerate dissent. We will not allow people to speak out against the war. And this then becomes the Espionage Act and the, uh, the Sedition Act of, uh, of 1917 and 1918. And this essentially says that espionage is no longer a matter of taking uh, state secrets or secret information and transmitting this to some foreign enemy. But espionage is simply the, the stating in public of opinions that might be of some use to the foreign enemy. In other words, just an opinion saying this war is wrong or we should make peace. That became a crime. Uh, and this, this hurt quite a number of people. Uh, Eugene V. Debs, of course, is the famous one that, that Woodrow Wilson put in jail, right? The Socialist Party candidate for... Uh, for president, who had gotten significant uh, votes, uh, but how about something like the the poet E. E. Cummings was an ambulance driver in in northern France, and he said to a friend, "You know, I really don't hate Germany." He was put in a concentration camp on the basis of that. The most extreme, though, is they decided that nothing that would criticize the government, right? Any criticism of Wilson, you could say Wilson is no good. That was a crime. Uh, and you couldn't send that through the mail. The most effective suppression was newspapers, of course, and, and other written stuff had to go through the mail. So with the help of, of Wilson's uh, uh, postmaster general, they said 75 newspapers are banned from the U.S. mail. I think you get the idea of, uh, of a horrendous uh, crackdown under these two laws, the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act. And I, I, I think uh, parts of this is still on the books. And, of course, Obama doesn't care anyway because he has arrogated to himself the, uh, this uh, ability to put people in jail and, uh, and to keep them there. Uh, the Federal Reserve goes through under Woodrow Wilson, right, similar to uh, Obama's uh, total subordination to Wall Street interests, as indicated by Geithner and Summers and Volcker, and, and the fact that uh, he's getting all the money from Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase and so forth. So this gets you the idea of Woodrow Wilson as a detached, academic, pedantic, cold hypocrite. And I think we see something like this. So I think though the lesson concerning this war situation is that when you're dealing with a Wall Street Democrat, which is what we've got, and I think more and more people are, are, are seeing it, the temptation for totalitarian police state repression 
is very strong, uh, and you can see this. Uh, it's it's a part of the intellectual life of the early 20th century that people have lost touch with. Take, for example, a novelist like John Dos Passos. He was considered by some to be the greatest uh, American writer, at least uh, during certain phases of critical evolution. And his his trilogy, this USA, right? The uh, it's a three volume set. Uh, essentially targets Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson as the twin demons that had set the U.S. on the wrong course, right, with imperialism. Certainly they both agreed on that. They're both progressives. They both present themselves as reformers. But somehow, out of all the reforms, Wall Street gets stronger and stronger, and the will of Morgan meaning just Wall Street in general, I guess, today. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, well, they're still there. Morgan Stanley, they're still there, too. They've survived. That this this will of Wall Street gets to be uh, stronger and stronger. So, well, remember, under Woodrow Wilson, 2,000 people were arrested. Imagine that. 2,000 anti-war activists were arrested and prosecuted, not not all convicted, maybe not too many convicted, but arrested and prosecuted is, is probably bad enough. And that's what you had under this um, very aloof, uh, anglophile uh, president, uh, Woodrow Wilson. And I think it's, it's, it's hard to agitate with this today because nobody knows much about Woodrow Wilson anymore. But if you wanted to pick one that Obama recapitulates, I'm afraid it's, it's Woodrow Wilson. That means a historical tragedy on a tremendous scale. Well, you know, when I was listening to Obama's speech before the West Point cadets and all of the orchestration of the 9-11 events, and he brought up the Bali bombing, the Jordan, Amman Jordan hotel bombings, the London bombing, and Al-Qaeda, and we were attacked, was so thick with it, I did start to feel, what is he saying? Oh, and I think he even intimated that there was a domestic threat here uh, against the U.S., Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And again, I can't look into the secret councils of uh, of uh, Ram Emanuel and uh, and Eric Holder and uh, Janet Napolitano, otherwise known as Totalitariano. Uh, but again, history is a very good guide. It seems to me that the cultural determinants of elitism, academic, uh, quackademic pedantry, hypocrisy that you see with Obama these are these are extremely Strong. The net effect of Wilson was to destroy the Democratic Party for an entire generation, because between this warmonger stuff and the repression, which was just unprecedented, right, the total suppression of the First Amendment in the name of democracy, right, make the world safe for democracy by, by crushing dissent in your own country. Well, that meant that uh, we had Harding, we had Coolidge, we had Hoover. And without Franklin D. Roosevelt, that might have just gone on and on. So it was a whole generation, really, before the Democrats came back into the, into the White House. So anyway, this is where we are now. I don't want to overdo the historical side, but I think it shows something of the fix that we're, we're now in. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama and Civil Liberties. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, with regard to repression and civil liberties, what about some of these recent arrests drumming up this Muslim hysteria and this so-called right. homegrown terrorism? Now, what about this Mr. Zazi? Before we get to Zazi, Zazi is one case. We have a whole bunch of them. Let me just say something about, about the general approach. Um, notice that the CIA... Uh, <laughs> 
couple of dozen of them have been found guilty in Italy, in Milan, for the kidnapping. Of, I guess he's a Muslim cleric. I mean, he's really not. He's really a, an intelligence operative. Uh, but the, the point is, there was this, this guy in a mosque in Milan, Italy, and uh, the CIA swooped in with a team, one of these you know, teams of Green Beret, special forces, uh, CIA veterans, and so forth, and they, they took him out of there. They took him to Aviano Air Base in northern Italy. They tortured him there. They took him to Rammstein in Germany. Then they flew him to Egypt, where he was tortured and held. He was held for a couple of years, and he's actually still there. He can't get out of the country. Now, uh, we can talk about this guy. He's a, a funny story in his own right. Uh, but the point was, this this was completely under the control of the Italians. This is now the most documented and the most thoroughly discussed case of kidnapping called rendition in uh, the entire uh, decade post, uh, post 9-11. And those convictions were handed down. The CIA station chief in Milan, Robert Lady, uh, was given an eight-year sentence for kidnapping. And other CIA operatives were given sentences for kidnapping, jail time. They're all fugitives, of course. None of them showed up. There were also a couple of, of officials of the Italian Sismi who were uh, convicted as, as part of this. I, I say this because uh, we have to remind ourselves that the process of kidnapping, right, renditions, and then the black sites, the secret prisons where they're kept, many people think that this is all over with. It is not. If you go back to the uh, executive order that Obama issued in the first couple of days of his administration, he says, that uh, renditions uh, will go on. Uh, they're not going to be stopped, right? That renditions are indispensable. And it's very funny. You get uh, people like uh, Malinowski of Human Rights Watch who were saying when renditions were carried out under Bush that this was a total violation of all applicable international law. But now Malinowski says, well, as long as Obama's doing it, it's a useful tool. It's an indispensable tool. We need it. So where, where's the opposition? Well, that's uh, the scary thing about Obama, right? Yeah. He has basically paralyzed the entire anti-war movement for a period of about two years. But just on the, on the renditions, the renditions go on. And then if you look in that same uh, uh, executive order, the question of the black sites, in other words, the secret prisons and indeed torture chambers, you know, located in Poland and Romania and, and many, many other places in the Baltic states. He says we can't have those for long-term detention, but for temporary, transitional detention, we can use them. So what this simply means is the rhetoric has changed, but renditions, i.e. kidnappings, totally illegal, and uh, secret prisons not covered by the Geneva Convention. They're not, you know, reported to the International Red Cross. None of this. There's just secret prisons and, I would assume, torture chambers. That all goes on. Of course, Obama says we don't torture, but again, you are delivering them to uh, countries that do, uh, and uh, the U.S. also does, right? So who are we kidding? Uh, they probably have, you know, other other techniques, right? Not so much the Chinese water torture that is so-called waterboarding, which is you know, much discussed, but I'm, I'm sure they have other ways to do it. So if you look at this, nothing has changed uh, except that the opposition has completely rolled over. So that, that was just a premise. But here's the thing we do know. This year, say in the past 12 months, we have a tremendous increase in uh, operations aiming at Islamophobia. And uh, if you want, I can give you a kind of a summary of this. I wouldn't start with Zazi. Let's go chronologically. And in particular, we have this case 
of the four Bronx bombers. Now, this came up in May, and I, I start with this one because we're dealing now with things that have happened under Obama, under Holder, under Napolitano, right, under the new regime, under Rahm Emanuel. Let's start with the four Bronx bombers, then we'll get on to Zazi, and then we can probably get on to Major Hassan if we have time, huh? Absolutely. You've written this incredible article on Hassan, the Fort Hood shooter, and it's very important, and I want to go over that. Fine. Let's, let's start with this other one, though, because there are two levels, right? Hassan is a patsy where they've invested a lot of time and a lot of effort, and it's a very big deal. But then we have sort of the garden variety patsy who are uh, generally people of, of much more modest uh, attainments, right? They're not MDs. They're not part of the transition advisory team or any of these other things. Let's start with the four Bronx bombers. Now, this, you'll recall, was in May of this year, uh, four uh, very poor black ex-convicts recently released in the New York area, a uh, little bit north of New York City, were arrested with charges that they wanted to bomb a synagogue in Riverdale, the sort of wealthier part of the Bronx, uh, and that they also wanted to shoot down airplanes coming from the Newburgh Air National Guard base using Stinger missiles, SAMs. Um, and, of course, in, in both cases, they thought they had weapons, but the C-4 plastique explosive that they had that the FBI had given them in Connecticut was not real. And the Stinger missile that the FBI had given them in Connecticut was also not real. So this is now this continuous FBI theater uh, of the absurd, right? This, this cookbook uh, kind of uh, terrorism. But uh, we just give some examples of this and then give the general rule. Who do we find, right? There are three U.S. citizens and one Haitian among the, um, among the patsies. One of them is James Cromatee. Again, very poor, black, ex-convict, recently released, described in the indictment or by the FBI itself as a wannabe terrorist of very, very limited means. And then we get to number two, Laguerre Payen, second defendant, I think he's a Haitian, is described by his own attorney as mentally challenged and taking medications for schizophrenia. He's described as someone with a low borderline IQ. Sounds like a semi-moron of the 60 to 70 IQ range. Then we have David Williams and Anta Williams, one of them a purse snatcher, and one of them uh, was such a marijuana addict that he got himself stupefied with marijuana on the day of this big attack when they were all arrested because they thought they were putting bombs into a car near this uh, this Jewish synagogue in in Riverdale, New York. Now, they've all been converted to Islam in prison. And that's something to watch because you have to suspect for sure on the British side and most likely on the U.S. side, the people doing the conversions to Islam in the prisons are suspected themselves of being part of an agent or patsy recruitment uh, operation. Now, the way this worked in this case... Well, now, hold on. In what time frame were they converted in prison? Well, over the years, right? So you mean before the event that they're being... Yeah, before the event, of course. They've got to be converted to Islam before this all starts. So the main thing we need now is a slick FBI informer, an agent provocateur, and also an ex-con, somebody the FBI can throw into jail. And this is... Shahid Hussein, also known as Maksud. And what's his story? He comes on the, on the scene. He is variously described as fishy, creepy, 
a suspected government agent, but he has lots of money. And he comes on the scene and he says, I can get you jobs. Here's some money. I can get you cell phones. I can get you computers. I can pay you rent. I can buy you dinner. This Maksud, the FBI provocateur, informer, says to uh, Cromity, brother, whatever you need, I will get it for you. Here's the rent money. Let's go have dinner and all the rest of this stuff. So it's, it's so obvious what has happened here. Right? You have four mentally impaired, poverty-stricken uh, individuals who are approached by a fast-talking uh, expert uh, con artist who has all the resources of the FBI. He takes them to Stanford, Connecticut. He plants these uh, non-functioning weapons and explosives on them, and they're too dumb to realize it, of course, and then they, they go and try to do something, and then they're all, all arrested. And then at that point, the media circus goes wild. Mayor Bloomberg is out there. The uh, U.S. attorney is out there and so forth. Again, the Associated Press refers to these patsies as amateurs. They were so inept, they're so uh, just impotent that they can't manage to take money into a Walmart and come out with guns and cameras which are on sale or, or in some other store where they're on sale. Right? The nation refers to them as losers, ex-cons, drug addicts. So it's clear what has happened. The entire case has been fabricated. These were four inert lumps. You know, they're part of the human wreckage of this society, not hard to find. Uh, and they, they were then entrapped, and, and they're the object of a sting operation. And this entire thing is manufactured and invented out of whole cloth. We can even come up with an FBI cookbook. It looks like this. You get one provocateur, or one or two, right, provocateurs, who can carry out this sting or entrapment operation. You give them unlimited money and resources. And since you want to target Muslims, of course, you go to a mosque, right? If you were looking for some other group, you'd go someplace else. But you go to a mosque, and as you'd find someplace else, too, you'll find the, the human wreckage of society in the form of, of the patsies. And these are mentally impaired, mentally uh, ill, gullible patsies, uh, dupes, whatever they are. And they've got to be very poor. In other words, they've got to have the mental problems and at the same time extreme poverty so that the money looms very, very large with them. You then sheep-dip them. Ah, and this is the interesting case with this group. You've got to sheep-dip them. You've got to get them in touch with somebody who's a famous terrorist. And in this case, they tied them to Jaish-e-Mohammed. And Jaish-e-Mohammed is a Pakistani group. Notice, Pakistan, Pakistan, Pakistan. This is part of the worm turning, right? When they tied them to Iran, it was one thing, but not anymore. Now Pakistan is clearly the target. So Jaish-e-Mohammed, they somehow got them in touch, and they exchange emails or something saying, jihad, right on, uh, you know, go brothers, whatever it is. And these poor jerks uh, fall for it all. And then you give them the junk weapons. You know, sometimes it's a delivery of fertilizer to the, to the backyard, whatever it is. Uh, you get them to, you know, to mouth off. You get them to target, you know, various groups to speak against Jews or the United States or whatever it is. You get them to take an oath to al-Qaeda to send, you know, fan mail to uh, Osama bin Laden and all the rest of this stuff. And then, you, and then you, uh, you wrap them up. And then you've got a show trial, and you can whip up uh, hysteria. Let me just say, this now is... The pattern is the same. The thing that's new is the Pakistan side. And, of course, the fact that this is happening now under Obama, and it's a new, new, uh, a new wave. Recently, we've had, what, the Fort Dix Six, 
They, were, they wanted to attack Fort Dix, New Jersey, go in there and essentially do what, what Major Hassan did uh, with weapons, except as the FBI informant in that case complains, they're so lackadaisical, they're so lazy, they don't do anything, you know, they're taking forever, they want more money, they don't, uh, they, they don't produce any results. We have the JFK Airport pipeline bombers in the New York area. Now, the head of this is a guy who's described as a sad sack. He is a vagrant who sold incense on the streets of New York City, and his main source of income was going to pay phones, which he could still find, and getting the coins out of the pay phones. That's another case. The Liberty City 7. These are the Miami Haitians. They're living in a warehouse in the poorest part of Miami, Liberty City. Uh, they're desperate for money. At least one of them is described as mentally ill by a relative. Uh, in one case, the FBI provocateur gives one of them a camera saying, go take pictures of a, of a target building. And the poor guy goes and pawns the camera for $56 to get money so he can give his family uh, dinner. So you get the idea. Well, yes, these same cases, they're also similar. Yeah, they are. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama and Civil Liberties. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, let's go then to Zazie. And I have to tell you, Zazie, uh, I found fascinating because the the terrorism mosque that Zazi allegedly frequented is about one block from a place where I lived uh, as a child about 10 years of my life, all during grade school and high school. I walked by this terror mosque essentially every day. It's on 33rd Avenue in Flushing, Queens, between Union Street and Parsons Boulevard, for people who know the area. Sort of north Flushing on the border with Whitestone. Uh, and that's where the terror mosque was, where Zazi and some others operated. Also on Bound Street, over by the Bound House on the other side of Northern Boulevard, for people who know this area. Anyway, Zazi. Now, this is the guy... He pushes a push cart and sells snacks in, in offices at lunch hour, I believe. And anyway, he, he's Najibullah Zazi from Afghanistan, uh, born there and then came over to the U.S. Apparently, his parents at one point lived in the same apartment building with the U.S. representative of Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Now, Hekmatyar is officially a warlord, a terrorist, a drug runner, but everybody knows that the CIA has been in close relations, that he's been the darling of the CIA for decades. They've been supporting the, him? and, and have Yeah, been... they love him. I mean, Hekmatyar is exactly what they want. In other words, he's a new Dark Ages type. Any country he takes over is going to be thrown back into the, into the new Dark Ages, and that's, of course, the idea. The thing is, they try to tie this Najibullah Zazi and his, his father, I think, to, to Hekmatyar on the flimsiest. Uh, they tried to sheep-dip him that way. The Zazi case is extreme in the sense that there is no evidence. There's nothing. I don't see a provocateur. I don't see any weapons. I don't see anything. And remember that the, the, uh, the work done against Zazi is simply lying to government officials. That's the only charge that I can see. And I, I took another look uh, this evening right, to see if anything had changed in that regard. Well, yes, he's accused of lying, but isn't he also accused of conspiracy by Eric Holder? Well, yeah, look, here's the thing. They say that he went to Afghanistan, Pakistan. Well, <laughs> that's you know, home for him, or for the family at least. And they say that he somehow had some contact with a camp allegedly belonging to al-Qaeda. Now, I don't know. 
you have to remember that uh, al-Qaeda is uh, the CIA Arab Legion, and all sorts of people on the U.S. side have quite close contact to al-Qaeda because they run it. It's done through manipulation, right? It's not a direct link, but in effect, this is something that they sponsor and, and, and direct. So uh, Zazi also had a lawyer who apparently gave him the most terrible advice. The first advice to Zazi is shut up. You know, Miranda, um, Fifth Amendment. But he didn't do that. He went and talked to the government for two days, and then the only thing they could arrest him on was something that he had told them. So that's another good uh, good lesson for the time coming. Remember, the Fifth Amendment is, is your shield. So uh, I think Zazi, this was essentially a media circus, and it was huge, right, for several days. You remember they had raids all over Queens and all kinds of things going on, a tremendous media circus based on virtually nothing. Well, the funny, what I uh, cracked me up about the Zazi case, they kept claiming that he went to beauty supply stores and bought so nail polish to- removed mover and uh, uh, hairspray uh, or something. And uh, well, right, hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide, right? The secret of every blonde at, at some point is uh, hydrogen peroxide is, is in a, a component for a bomb. So <laughs> watch out. <laughs> Any Clairol in the medicine chest could then become uh, a criminal exhibit. And so, he's still locked up, right? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, again, the details, I think, of each of these cases are interesting as long as we just get the idea of the pattern, right? Now, Speaking of the pattern, let's go on to Nidal Malik Hassan of uh, Fort Hood, right? Because this is now in the first half of November, about a, a month ago. Let me just point out now about the method. This is now a different league, though. This is not the league of the uh, the stumble bums, right? He gets to travel. He gets even to be a part of the uh, the general uh, transition apparatus of the uh, Obama regime. But let me just point out one thing: the the whole. Uh, 9-11 truth movement, it seems to me, um, one of the, the most important, uh, what can I say, theoretical uh, bases of it, which I tried to contribute, which was this idea that when you see new events of this type, uh, typically the Fort Hood shootings, you've got to look for, first of all, the patsies. We've been talking about them, right? We've been talking about the various patsies that have been rounded up lately. Uh, the moles. We haven't talked too much about the moles. The moles are people inside the government, but they're not representing a government interest. They represent a private network, and uh, they have various tasks. They have to make sure that the patsies are not arrested, uh, no matter what they do, but then once it happens, that the patsies are rounded up immediately. So that's the moles. And then you have the technicians. And the interesting thing about uh, some of these uh, crimes, when the thing actually takes place, is that the media try to attribute to the patsy things that are physically impossible, things that the patsy can't do, right? Um, Oswald can't shoot that way. He can't shoot the number of shots with the necessary accuracy in the time he's got. Can't be done. Um, and, you know, many, many other uh, examples, right? You know, Atta cannot fly a plane into a building. He just can't do it. And certainly not Hani Hanjour uh, flying it into the Pentagon. And, and indeed, there it looks like there was no plane. So, those are the technicians who do these things. The technicians are the people, whether inside government, in the private sector, or wherever they are, who actually carry out the effects that you see. And then finally, related to that maybe, is the idea of the drill. Uh, especially in the more ambitious uh, kinds of terror actions, government resources have to be used. There's no way around it, because they're the only ones who have it. And in that case, one of the things that the moles have to do is to arrange drills that closely resemble the terrorist action that's going to be carried out, 
and then they take them live. They flip them live with what look like small changes uh, from some points of view, then make a pretend murder or a pretend bombing into a real bombing and a real murder. So patsies, moles, technicians, and drills. These, are the, these I think, are the big things to keep in, uh, in mind. Now, it's also important, don't look at the patsy first, because the patsy is what the media offer you, right? As soon as the shooting goes on in Fort Hood, within about 24 hours, they have Major Hassan, Major Hassan, Major Hassan. But let's not focus on that. Let's focus, first of all, on the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And I just looked at various websites, and what you find is half a dozen of the soldiers, including a couple of officers, right? I think a captain and uh, another officer, right? a, a major, I think, they all say, we thought we were in a drill. Everybody thought this was a drill. I thought it was a drill. We thought the supervisors were holding a drill. Uh, a training exercise. One guy who was shot said, I thought it was a rubber bullet as part of a drill. Uh, we thought the shooting was a drill. And here's one of them who says, this is now a um, uh, specialist. He says, my initial thought is that it was a drill because you know you're always getting drilled for situations. Well, what they've told us now is that there are constant terror drills on these military bases, and the majority view seems to be they thought that that is what it was. Now, the question this raises is, what did Hassan think it was? Uh, is he like Atta, for example? Atta and the rest of these characters, to the extent they were on these planes, thought that they were going there as actors in a drill, in a legally sanctioned drill, and indeed that they'd be back in the discotheque or the opium den uh, by the end of the day, right? which is what, what some of these characters obviously thought. Now, here's the other thing. Watch the early reports, uh, and in the early reports, based on press conference by the head of the base, right, a lieutenant general by the name of Cohn, he says, we have three shooters. We have uh, one who is wounded and two shooters who are in custody. So a total of three shooters. And I just give examples from wire service reports, right? One, one gunman killed, two in custody. Yes, I okay. remember that. Originally, I remember that. Say Hassan is dead, and then a little bit later he's come back to life. Let's get to that in just a second. Notice also that the original report said that there was one area of shooting at this theater on the base and another area of shooting at the uh, readiness center where the, the troops are getting processed to go for their deployments overseas. So we go from three shooters to one. What happened to the other two? No word, right? They simply disappear from the narrative, and this indicates, well, it could be the following, that Hassan was a patsy, didn't know what was going on around him, went to the drill, might have had a gun, uh, might have gotten up on a chair to say, Allah Akbar, why not? That would be part of a drill. And then other shooters begin to shoot. And it's also, it's not mutually exclusive. If you look at somebody like Sirhan Sirhan, he seems to have been somebody who went after Robert Kennedy with a gun and did some kind of shooting. But the problem is, he's not a good enough shooter. He's not a marksman. He's not going to be effective. So he was supplemented by some other shooting action going on to kill Robert Kennedy that day. So that might be what happened with Hassan, in which he might be a complete dupe, and he just goes there and gets caught up in something that, that he's not a part of. Or, yeah, he thinks he's going to shoot, but he's not reliable. 
So we've got other marksmen, professionals, right, people who are real shooters, you know, not medical doctors, not eggheads like Hassan, but the, the tough guys, and they do a lot of shooting because the reports are 100 to 120 rounds. And well, that's seems, right. That's a huge amount of bullets. Seems like a lot of bullets for a guy with, a, with one semi-automatic pistol and one other pistol, which is not even semi-automatic. So you've got to remember, they say that the troops around him are not armed, but these are combat veterans. I mean, they know other things, right? They might have a knife. They might tackle him. They might come after him in, in some other area, right? They got him outnumbered if he's all alone. And then this other thing, the acme of physical impossibility, of course, is uh, being brought back from the dead. And that is what happens to Major Hassan, that he's, he's dead for about eight hours, I would say, from one or two in the afternoon, central time, until about nine or ten in the evening, give or take. Uh, and out of nowhere comes the announcement from Lieutenant General Cohn that he's alive. And what is the explanation of this? Can, can this be believed? Now, then we look at the Patsy, right? Uh, we can now look after we've gotten the, you know, the, pretty much the idea that this is a staged false flag event. Let's look at the Patsy a little bit and see if he, if he has the characteristics of a Patsy. The number one duty of a Patsy is to stand out, to be egregious, to get noticed, right? to offend people, to step on their toes, you know, to, to elbow them in the ribs so they'll always remember you, right? Atta's gaze. Uh, nobody forgets it. Uh, Oswald, right? Fair play for Cuba committee leaflets goes on television to say that he's a Marxist and a communist when this was considered absolute heresy. So what's with Major Hassan? Well, he's here at the uh, National Institutes of Health, Uniformed Services Medical University. He's shuttling between there and uh, Walter Reed Army Hospital, both you know, just a few miles from, from where I am here. And he gives a uh, PowerPoint. He's supposed to give a PowerPoint on a clinical medical topic, but he rather wants to talk about his favorite obsession, which is the role of Muslims in the U.S. military. And he goes through this thing saying that uh, it's absolutely impossible to ask Muslims to fight against other Muslims. This is simply ridiculous. What was the Iran-Iraq war? This is two Muslim armies confronting, right? One was a theocracy, one a secular dictatorship. But if you go back, if you look at the history of the Middle East, it's about 12 or 13 centuries where it's pretty much the rule that uh, Muslim armies are fighting Muslim armies, and sometimes it's a theocracy on both sides. As a matter of fact, at the beginning, it's, it's a civil war, if you like, about religion itself. But then he goes on, and he comes out with things like this. We love death more than you love life. Now, <laughs> this is uh, boilerplate ID format Al-Qaeda speak. Anybody who hears that knows that uh, this is going to put up red flags. Now, normally... He would then have been interviewed. He would have been investigated. Remember also, he's not just anybody. He's got a secret-level security clearance. I think this is an interesting giveaway. You could say, well, he's just a major, right? Yeah, but any major has to have a secret-level or above or above uh, security clearance. So they just ignore it, right? He also he entitles this PowerPoint, The Quranic Worldview as it relates to Muslims in the U.S. military. Now, Quranic Worldview, that sounds like the Quran is one among many possible worldviews, and no fundamentalist would ever say this, right? It, it, it is the one. It's the truth. It's not a worldview. It's God's absolute honest truth, and it doesn't compete with other worldviews. So we have all this. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama and Civil Liberties. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Um, 
in the course of his time at uh, Walter Reed. They have a meeting of his supervisors, and I put the names in the article because I think some of these people should answer, you know, what were you doing here? Because you'd have to ask them, are you a mole? Because uh, that's the kind of thing you'd have to look for. Um, and, you know, you point out in there that as a, a military-trained psychiatrist, he would be surrounded by shrinks, and they would right. be evaluating his, his uh, psychological right. makeup. And indeed, as I understand it, I believe the training of a shrink still involves being psychoanalyzed yourself, because it has to be that way, right? You've got to get some kind of uh, self-awareness or self-consciousness, and I think that's what they do. So that means that the, the, the profiling opportunities for him are tremendous, as well as the supervision that he should have been under as somebody with this... Uh, Security clearance. He's a major, after all. This is this is of serious uh, military rank. Now he's described on the job. He's described as disconnected, aloof, paranoid, belligerent, and schizoid. Right? Not very good. Exactly. Now here's here's the other thing. They have a meeting about him, and they just they try to decide what to do. And we know from press reports now that the main question they confront is: Is he a psychotic? And I think certainly obsessed. Um, he goes to a mosque where they routinely hold fundraising events for the Chechen terrorists. Now, of course, we know, anybody who knows anything knows that Basayev and Maskadov and those other Chechen leaders are from British intelligence and from the CIA. So he's essentially at a mosque where they do fundraising operations for CIA covert operations. And again, under the cover, of course, that these are Muslim brothers, but nobody is that dumb. Uh, the other thing is that he's got to be sheep-dipped. How is he sheep-dipped? He's got to be put in touch with al-Qaeda, right? So here we have Anwar Awlaki. And Awlaki is a patsy minder or patsy recruiter. He comes from the mosque in Falls Church, Virginia, where we had none other than Hani Hanjur and... Uh, Let's see, at least one other. I think we have Khalid al-Midari and Nawaz al-Hazmi also, but um, Hani Hanjur. Hani Hanjur is supposedly the uh, the Red Baron who does the 270-degree Immelman turn into the Pentagon, right? Uh, this fantastic story. And in reality, of course, Hani Hanjur, as I write in my, my book, is dumb and dumber. He is the most wretched. They, the uh, flight school here in uh, College Park, Maryland, won't even let him take off because they think he's going to crash their plane. And this is just a small plane. So it's clear that Aulaki is a double agent working for the U.S. He recruits patsies, and he runs this mosque, which is considered to be a good place to park the uh, borderline psychotic Hani Hanjur, And uh, Hassan is attending there also with his mother, I might add. And of course, any psychology approach, right, when he's so devoted to his mother, this also raises uh, various interesting questions. Um, so, Aulaki. Um, Aulaki is part of the sheep dipping of the Fort Dick Six, the ones that we just mentioned, right, the, the uh, lackadaisical ones. Aulaki is somebody who now uh, operates out of Yemen, and it's, it's clear that he's a CIA-sanctioned double agent operation in Yemen, and that he essentially is useful for, you know, having dupes come forward who say, you know, I, I want to serve, what should I do? Or he can be used to sheep-dip people. He, he sheep-dipped the Fort Dick Six, and also these dupes in Toronto. The Toronto ones were the ones where they, they, uh, they had the Royal Canadian Mounted Police come and deliver a huge amount of um, fertilizer, and then they were going to drop it off. And uh, 
and they signed for it, and of course then they were all rounded up. That's so, right. Now, they, Alaki is in Yemen, but he used to be running this mosque. Uh, in, in Falls Church, Virginia. That's right. Huh, Falls so, Church. Huh. Again, uh, you see that this network is, is not that big. There are just you know, a number of, uh, of these operatives. The other thing is, why wasn't the Pentagon, why wasn't the Army Command, why wasn't the base commander told about all of this stuff in uh, Major Hassan's past? And it turns out that there is a, uh, a joint anti-terrorism center. But And the, the FBI says they brought it up, that they were investigating Major Hassan because of his exchange of emails with the infamous double agent Awlaki. They were at the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Washington, D.C., and there is a representative there of the Defense Criminal Investigation Service, but that guy from the Defense Criminal Investigation Service and the FBI together decide it's not important. We don't need to tell anybody about Hassan. Now, this reminds us of, remember Dave Frasca, the famous uh, Islamic fundamentalism desk of the FBI, when he was getting reports from Minneapolis and from Phoenix saying, look, there are these crazy guys taking courses in flying planes. What does it mean? And Frasca and his office say, you know, nothing we oh, won't. We won't course. do anything. So that's that's the duty of a of a of a of a mole, right? The mole has got to make sure that none of these patsies get get rounded up. Now, here's the other thing. Atta, we remember Atta is a cocaine addict. He loves pork chops. He uh, lives with a prostitute. He goes to strip clubs. He's into cocaine and vodka and all the rest of it. Nightlife. Now, what do we find? Do we find the austere puritanical lifestyle of the true? Uh, Islamic fundamentalist. Well, with Major Hassan, we find that he likes to go to the Stars Strip Club near Fort Hood. He's been to the Stars Strip Club at least three times in the months before the attacks. He comes in with a military ID, pays a $15 cover, and stays for six or seven hours gaping at the pole dancers. Uh, Jennifer Jones, who performs under the name of Paige, she sold a lap dance to uh, Major Hassan for two nights in a row. And he pays $50 for a lap dance lasting three songs in a private room on October 29th and October 30th, presumably when the uh, Islamic uh, devotion was at its height. Uh, and he comes in with a six-pack of light beer, drinks some of it himself, and gives the other cans of beers to the strippers. He prefers the blondes. Jennifer is a dyed blonde. He says he's a medic, uh, but he wants to talk to the strippers. So uh, a strange Islamic fundamentalist. We may remember that Atta also preferred blondes. In his case, it was the uh, this woman, Amanda Keller, that he was living with, who was a, uh, her hair was actually dyed pink at the time of the 9-11 event. So we may be dealing with, the, with different things there. Then, of course, you've got uh, business cards that say, I'm a soldier of Allah. And then Virginia Tech. Um, and hold on a minute about those business cards. I remember reading in the newspaper that those business cards weren't delivered to his uh, vacated apartment until after the event. Oh, how interesting. No, I missed that one. That's interesting, too. So he was. they provided that uh, post-festum, right, after the fact. All right, Virginia Tech. Um, now, remember Cho. Right? Cho, Cho and, and Major Hassan have something in common. The idea is that they're 
and Cho is again who? He was the Virginia Tech yeah, shooter. This is the shooter with the 33 dead all told, April 2007. And this is Cho Senghui, and he does the shooting, or he's, he's alleged, because also here, there's another person who's arrested, a Chinese. Uh, remember, this was an international incident, because the U.S. said a Chinese national has been arrested. The Chinese foreign ministry protested vigorously about this. But that guy could have also been a, uh, a patsy himself. And indeed, there's some question about whether whether Cho could have done the things that, that he's accused of having done. I, I can't get so much into that one now, because that's really a forest of, of details. There, there should have been an investigation of that. Governor Kane of Virginia, the head of the Democratic National Committee, uh, appointed a board to do an investigation of that. But they do the usual thing, begging the question, right? Petitio principi. They say, okay, we all know Cho did it and let's see how he did it. <laughs> Instead, the point is to prove that he did it and that nobody else did it. This is what they, what they never do. So a lot of the families in this case are also deeply uh, dissatisfied. But with, with Cho, um, here's the thing. Uh, he comes from Virginia Tech. Major Hassan went for at least a couple of years to Virginia Tech. What's, what's going on in Virginia Tech lately? Well, in January of 2009, a Virginia Tech doctoral student beheaded a fellow student in a campus cafe. This is a female graduate student who just arrived from China, sits down with another um, student. I think this is a, a Chinese graduate student who's been there for a while, and he pulls out a knife and carves her head off, a beheading on campus. Now, it's, this did not get really the attention that it might have deserved, because I think beheadings are, are not that common on campuses still. In August of 2009, two Virginia Tech University students were found murdered at the Jefferson National Forest Campground, which is a place frequented. It's not so far from the campus, and it's frequented by students. So these two bodies are found uh, by passers-by. Now, I, I can't solve the question of Virginia Tech except to say there's something going on at Virginia Tech, and we don't know what it is. We have some sources that say that there's a uh, mind control operation uh, of the uh, DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, in the side of a mountain, and that this has something to do with it. I've also heard that there were uh, drills on the Virginia Tech campus in the months before the show event where um, shootings were being drilled. Um, so we may be dealing there with the drill that, that went wild. I, I, again, I haven't been able to scrutinize Cho as much as he deserves, but I think what you can see now is the, uh, is the pattern. Uh, there's a buildup to Islamophobia. We have to add in the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed trial in New York City, which is guaranteed to be a horrendous brainwashing media circus. Yes, the the nine eleven uh, show trials that are coming up in New whipping York City, whipping up unbelievable hysteria. And remember the the trial of the four Bronx bombers, right? The four Patsies that I talked about before, the Riverdale synagogue bombers. That trial is now just beginning. So we've got the the ground being prepared by the the uh, four Bronx Patsies, and then we're going to have the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed trial. So if you see now these ingredients coming together, as we've sort of laid them out. What seems to be in the offing is a round of Islamophobia uh, in service of the new uh, war against Pakistan, which is what Obama has declared. Not just Afghanistan, but Pakistan is emphatically 
the target of the new policy, and we seem to see a, an orchestrated approach by this new uh, Obama regime, or the, maybe not so new, but uh, not different from Bush, except now in the idea that the target is much bigger. It's not Iraq, a defenseless state with 25 million people, but now it's Pakistan with 160 million people and nuclear weapons and missiles to deliver them uh, and, and, and so on down the line. So I think our, our situation has become uh, qualitatively worse. Well, hasn't Eric Holder essentially, in testimony before Congress, come out and said, don't worry, when we have this trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, etc., from Guantanamo, when they bring them to New York, he said, well, don't worry, we'll, we'll find them guilty. Right. The argument used to be that a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich. Now I think the, the argument from Holder is that now a, a, a normal jury, a normal trial, will convict a ham sandwich, which is, which is what we've got in these cases. By the way, we haven't got time to go through it now. I think we're approaching the end of our time. But the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is another in the Atta and Major Hassan school. And it was a bar fly, a, uh, a devotee of discotheques, right? a booze hound, uh, not, not the Islamic fundamentalist lifestyle at all. Right, and as I remember uh, several years ago, after his so-called arrest, uh, the people in the house where he was supposedly arrested said that he hadn't even been there. Right. And he may have been in custody before then. There might have been two or three of them. Sure. Anyway, I think that the basic pattern is clear. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Obama and Civil Liberties. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback, available from ProgressivePress.com. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks. 
police. You dig me? You got me? 